0: Turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7. We'll look at the first 11 verses this morning. We return this one last time to the book of Deuteronomy. This is the book of Moses' instruction to the people of Israel as they're camped across the river Jordan preparing to go into the land of Canaan. This is a rich book, Deuteronomy is, in which Moses reiterates the significance of God delivering his beloved out of Egypt and leading them through the land and giving them his law, and he prepares them for what's ahead. We're only looking at a few token sections of the book as a part of our Tracing the story of God bringing his people from slavery in Egypt to to possessing the land of promise in Canaan. Quite by coincidence, we come to this passage on Father's Day, a day on which we remember the powerful influence that fathers have on their children. In recent years, there's been an increased uh, study of uh, the role of fathers, and uh, to the surprise of some, actually, Um, fatherly influence is not insignificant. Absentee fathers leave their children floundering, without self-respect, without a sense of security, unprepared and destined for trouble in the world. While strong fathers tend to give their children a stability which prepares them for life, so they tend to grow up knowing better who they are and how they are to function in the world they face. Well, that's somewhat of our theme this morning. Moses sets before the children of Israel who they are and what God has given them to do. So let's give our attention to this text. For though our situation is so much different than theirs, it, uh, we need the same kind of fatherly instruction. Let me read the first 11 verses. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Gergesites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah poles. Burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord, your God, is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. And there we'll end our reading. There are two things that I'd like for you to see in this text this morning. We won't deal with every single phrase of it, But two things I'd like you to to see, and because our thought processes tend to be quite different than ancient, ancient Hebrew thought process, I want us to look at the second item first, and then come back to the first. For the second lesson is the cause, and the first is the effect. So our first point, which is really the second part of the text, is this. God chose you for himself. God chose you for himself. You've all heard of Thomas Paine from the revolutionary days in colonial America. The last thing Thomas Paine ever wrote uh, in, in that he said this, the absurd and impious doctrine of predestination, a doctrine destructive of morals, would never have been thought of Had it not been for some stupid passages in the Bible, which priestcraft at first and ignorance since have imposed upon mankind as revelation. Nonsense ought to be treated as nonsense wherever it is to be found. I think Thomas Paine did not believe in predestination. But he makes some correct. Observations, though ultimately he is quite wrong. It is true that we never, we might never have dreamed up such an idea if it was not in the Bible. Where would we ever come up with the idea of predestination or election? And it is true that the Bible claims to be God's revelation to us, not imposed by priestcraft or ignorance, as Payne suggests, but by God's sovereign disclosure, through which he shows us glorious things beyond our human comprehension. Ultimately, pain is not correct, for the fact that God chose us for himself is not absurd and impious and destructive to morals. It is a glorious and powerful truth which defines who we are. that's exactly what God said to his people here in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look at verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people His treasured possession. And that's not by any means the only time the Bible says this. For example, in Psalm 135 we read, For the Lord has chosen Jacob to be his own, Israel to be his treasured possession. The Lord does whatever pleases him, in the heavens and on the earth and in the seas and in all their depths. And in the New Testament, in Ephesians 1, we read the same kind of thing. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Oh, we may not understand it. It may be beyond our comprehension. Indeed, it is beyond our comprehension. But we cannot deny that the Bible teaches it; that this is God's revelation to us, that God chose us for himself. Which, of course, raises the question, why? Why? Why did he do that? What did God see in Israel or in us that caused him to choose us for himself? Well, wrong question, as God goes on to explain in this passage. First, he says it was not because of anything in us. Think of Israel's situation in in, in the community of uh, nations, one nation normally rises to prominence because it is bigger and more powerful than others. But here God specifically says that's not what happened in Israel. In verse 1 we read that the seven nations of Canaan were bigger and stronger than Israel. And in verse 7, the Lord says explicitly, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you, because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all people. Indeed, God later explains it was not only not about size, it was not about anything in them. In Romans 9, we read "Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born, or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. By his free, sovereign choice, God has chosen people for himself. You see, the reason for his choice is not to be found in us at all. The reason is to be found in God himself. We see that here in verse 7, the Lord set his affection on you and chose you. And again in verse 8, it was because the Lord loved you. Retired Princeton Old Testament professor Patrick Miller explains this passage and tells us there are two different words for love that are used here. In verse 7, a word is used which often means the strong physical desire of a man for a woman. So the Lord has such a strong desire for Israel. But contrary to what one might expect with that verb, there is nothing in Israel's appearance that should evoke such strong desire. Making one want to attach oneself to her, as as the verb would expect. To desire her because she's something. Instead, verse 8 gives the real reason for God's strong desire, using the other more common, simple word, the Lord loves you. The Lord set his affection on you because he loves you. Professor Miller concludes, the choice of Israel is rooted utterly in the love of God. Any notion of inherent character, beauty, or merit leading to the Lord's desire and choice, is explicitly rejected. The love of God, however, is intensely manifest toward this people, which is why one may properly speak of grace when talking about this divine election. And folks, what was said of Israel is also said of Christ's church in the New Testament. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. God chose us for himself. More than anything else in the world, this defines us. Israel was not just another nomadic tribe wandering in the desert looking for a land in which to settle. She was chosen by God in keeping with his promises to her forefathers. She bore his name in the world. She was the heir of his promised inheritance. Her mission was to trust him and do his will. (coughs) And he promised to protect her and grant her success. She was his treasured possession. And similarly, in our day, the church of Jesus Christ is not just another one of the world's religions. We are a people chosen by God before the creation of the world. Though God saw us hopelessly enslaved by sin, he was not willing that we all just perish. So he set his affection on those he pleased. And he sent his son to pay the penalty for our sin on a cross and rise from the dead. And God sent his spirit to search us out and call us to himself, to give us hearts to believe. And he who loved us as his own enough to do all this, will keep us to the end. This is our most basic identity. God has chosen us for himself. We are God's holy people. So how does one know if he's chosen? How do we know exactly who, whom God has chosen? Well ultimately we don't know. God has not published a list of the elect. He knows who belong to him, but our knowledge remains a bit imperfect. But God has announced to us the gospel promise. He says there's no difference, you're all sinners. But Christ died for sinners according to the scriptures. And he rose the third day, and now he invites us. If you're thirsty, come to me. If you're weary and heavy laden, come and take my yoke of discipleship and learn of me, for you'll find rest in me. Indeed, he now commands men everywhere in all nations, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and come follow me. And to his invitation and his command, he attaches this promise whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. And so we come in faith, hearing the promise, hearing the call, empty knowing we're unworthy, having no reason to believe that God had any reason to choose us, but we come. And sure enough, Jesus saves us just like he promised. He forgives our sins. He gives us eternal life. He gives us a new heart. He gives us his spirit. He joins us to the company of his people, his church. And as we look in faith to Jesus, God assures us, he's enough. You belong to me because of Jesus. By his grace, we are the children of God. But when we look back and wonder, why did he save me? Why did I turn around and follow him when so many of my friends who are so much smarter than me just walked on? What, what accounts for my change of heart? I was as rebellious as anyone else. Uh, then the answer of this text becomes increasingly clear. Why? Simply because God chose us for Himself. Oh, we sang this great mystery just this morning, one of the best songs we sing. What drew you to me? When I was filled with selfishness and sin, Lord, what did you see? There's nothing good that dwelled within. What appealed to you when I was given only to rebel? From where did this grace come that rescued me from an eternal hell? In fact, what drew me to you? There's no spark of loving interest in my heart. What attracted me when I could only stumble in the dark? What awakened me and called me out of hopelessness and death? What unlocked my heart and sent upon my soul the Spirit's breath? It was your Father's heart of love for me that sent your only Son, your Father's heart, that planned the cross to save each helpless one like me. I can see it's your heart of love. In love, God chose us for himself. But out of this glorious truth flow some powerful implications. Which bring us to our second point, which is actually the first part of our text. Our second point is this. God now calls you to separate from the world. God calls you to separate from the world. This week I will have the privilege of officiating at a wedding. Jesse Ryan, and his bride Kara will stand before me and take their vows to each other and to the Lord, vows which will join them in a covenant, uh, much like God has joined us to himself. Among those vows will be these familiar lines. Will you love her, comfort her, Honor and cherish her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others. Keep yourself only unto her so long as you both shall live. Now why are those lines included in wedding vows? Because to be chosen in love and joined together in a marriage covenant, demands a radical, lifelong separation to each other, in exclusion of all others. So God, who loved and chose us, now calls us to separate from the world unto him. So what does that look like? Well, what it looked like for Israel is described in our text, but Israel was in a much different situation than we are, so it looks quite different for us. Though the issues are the same for them and for us. But first, let's consider what it looked like for Israel. First, God, who chose Israel, was about to send them into this land that he had promised them. But this was a land that was filled with the enemies of God. We know about this from other passages. God had been patiently enduring the wickedness of the Canaanites for generations, and he had had enough, and it was judgment time. He was about to destroy them. At the same time, this wicked place was the place God had promised to give to Israel. He had promised it over 400 years ago to Abraham, their father. God is about to send his chosen ones, his holy, treasured possession, those set apart to himself, about to send them into the midst of the terrible, wicked place with with the instruction that they're to remain separate from all of that. How's it going to be possible? Well, God gives them very specific instruction concerning how to live this out. And that's what we find in these first verses of our text. They must destroy these wicked nations so that they can build a new society, God's righteous nation in this land. So sometimes we'll find, as we read on through the story, we'll find that God ordered them to completely annihilate some particularly wicked group. But God always called them to destroy the idols of the land. Tear down the altars to Baal. The Baals were the local deities. There were lots of local deities. Big altars in every place. Tear them down. Tear down the Asherah poles. Those were the poles to the, the fertility goddess. Tear them down. Burn the idols. Get rid of them. God always commanded that. He always forbade them to enter into peace treaties. You don't enter into a peace treaty, into a mutual protection pact with the people that I'm going to destroy, God says. And he always demanded that they not intermarry with those who were not God's people. This was not a prohibition against interracial marriage, which is not sin. This was a prohibition against interfaith marriage, believers marrying pagans. God called those whom he had chosen and separated to himself to radically set themselves apart from the people in this nation and to go in and obey him in, in running out the wickedness of this land. Now we live in a very different situation than Israel. The church is not the same as the nation. In our time. God's church permeates many nations and many cultures. The kingdom God is building is not a political kingdom, he's building a spiritual kingdom that permeates all the kingdoms of the world. And consequently God's kingdom is not to be advanced by military might, it's advanced by the proclamation of the gospel and God's people living in community according to his word. Nonetheless, the principles are the same. God calls you to separate from the world. So I want us to think for these last few moments of how Moses' instruction to Israel might apply to us. Let me suggest four things, how it applies. First, it means that God wants in our worship purity in worship God has not called us to go around to other places of worship false worship and tear down symbols and burn buildings in the New Testament Christians lived in countries filled with idols hundreds and hundreds of idols in a city like Corinth but never were believers sent out on seek-and-destroy missions. God has not called us to be Christian terrorists. We don't kill unbelievers. We don't tear down places of worship, even false temples. We don't burn abortion clinics. Don't let anyone suggest differently. That is terrorism, and it is sin. Nevertheless, While false worship goes on all around us, God will not tolerate us, including incorporating pagan worship into his church. He's called us to worship in spirit and in truth, according to his word, not according to the worldly fads all around us. God calls us to separate from the world. Second thing I think it means is God wants us to live godly lives in the midst of an ungodly world. Godly lives in the midst of an ungodly world. now some have reasoned, well, if we can't just get rid of the wicked, then we need to just withdraw from all contact with him. So in some parts of our country, we find the Amish riding around in black buggies and living in houses without electricity, for they're separating themselves from everything having to do with this world. But when Jesus prays for his disciples in John 17, he seems to see that separation quite differently. Listen to what he says. Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Set them apart. By your truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Apostle Paul writes the same kind of thing to the church at Corinth. He says, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. (laughs) I didn't call you to leave the world, he says. God hasn't called us to live in Christian communes. He's intentionally scattered us like salt all over the place. Like little beams of light all over the place. But he expects us to be different. To be set apart. Holy to him. Not just going with the flow of unrighteousness. God calls us to be separate from the world, godly in the midst of ungodliness. Third thing, what it means for us, God still forbids his people to marry unbelievers. I'm amazed how often Christian young people can get to the place of contemplating marriage or even planning a wedding without ever having addressed the fact that they do not share a common faith in Christ. But think about this. God says the marriage of two of his people is a reflection of his marriage to his bride, the church. How can that be? glorious picture of Christ's love for his bride be reflected in a marriage where he's not even acknowledged, where they don't even believe in him, one or the other of them. All you who are unmarried and seeking a spouse, you must come to grips with God's requirement for marriage. There are few truths taught as consistently throughout the whole scripture, Old and New Testament, as this. God forbids you. God forbids you to marry an unbeliever. There is never an excuse good enough. Including the one that says she's pregnant. There is never an excuse. And if that will help you decide, I promise I will never knowingly help you do that. God calls you to separate from the world, and that certainly means you don't enter into a marriage with an unbeliever. Finally, one more way that God's radical commands to Israel apply to us today. God requires us to put to death our fleshly desires. God requires us to put to death our fleshly desires. Think about it this way. We might think of our inner life as being like the land of Canaan. It's naturally filled with all kinds of idolatry and rebellion against God. But the Lord, by his grace, is moving in to clean house and establish his righteousness. God calls us to attack the remnants of wickedness and idolatry within ourselves as rigorously as he called Israel to destroy his enemies in the land of Canaan. Listen to some of the passages where the the Lord calls us to this task. For example, in Romans 8, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Or considering Colossians 3 Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these things in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of such things as these. Anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. This is the radical break with sin that Jesus is talking about. When he says this strange thing, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes to be thrown into hell. Jesus is not calling us to self-mutilation here. He's calling us to radically purge ourselves from sin. Finally, in Romans 15, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not even think about how to gratify the desires of your sinful nature. God has called us to separate from the world and that means the sin in our own heart you see it's quite it's one thing to stand at the altar and take marriage vows it's quite another to keep them to love and honor and cherish and keep yourself only for her for the rest of your life and that's what god expects of us For he has loved us and chosen us for himself, and now he calls us to live in holiness, separated to him, separated from the world. Make no mistake, this is as much a war, a fight to the death, as Israel was about to encounter as they entered the land of Canaan. The difference is that the enemy is myself. My own sinful flesh. And we need spiritual weapons to win this battle. The sword of God's word. God's spirit. The, pr- the prayers and admonition of God's people. God calls us to radical Separation from the evil which permeates the world, which permeates our own hearts, unto himself. As the children of Israel camped across the river Jordan from the land of Canaan, ready to enter, it was of utmost importance that they understand exactly who they are and to whom they belong that God had chosen them for himself and it was of utmost importance for them to understand exactly what he expected of them and how they were to proceed once they entered the land God called them to keep themselves separate the wickedness of the land. As you and I sit here this morning about to walk back out into the world, it is of utmost importance that we understand the same things. Who we are in Christ. We are God's chosen people, his treasured possession. And how he expects us to live He has called us to be holy as he is holy, separate from the sin in the world, in the world, but not of the world. Shall we pray together? Oh Lord, thank you for your word, and I pray that as we think about it, as the seed of your word is planted in our hearts and minds this morning, That you would do your work in us to reform our whole sense of who we are. That we're your chosen, treasured possession. And to give us a heart for the battle. The battle that never stops until we see you someday. Grant us such a holy commitment to you that we would not defile your name by joining ourselves in some improper way with the things of this world or by caving in to the wickedness even that we find in our own hearts give us a heart Lord to be your people you've told us that it's not by our might or by our power but by your spirit And so we ask you to work such things in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.